0: From time to time, we have a sound glitch that results in uh, not being able to create a recording for our worship service. Such was the case on the 30th of January, 2022. I'm going to reread just the scripture lessons and then uh, deliver the sermon again for this recording. Uh, Sorry that you were not able to hear uh, the wonderful music as well as the prayers as part of this presentation. but. For archival purposes, or maybe just my own satisfaction, it's nice to put something out there for the date that was missed. This was the fourth Sunday in Epiphany, and our first scripture lesson was from the first chapter of Jeremiah, verses 4 through 10. Jeremiah wrote, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words into your mouth. See today that I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. This Sunday we did not continue in the gospel lesson. We concluded with the epistle, which came from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, But do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures. All things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, love abide. These three. And the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. Open ears to hear your word, O Lord, and hearts to receive it. So that our hands may do your will. Grant that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, find their acceptance in thee, O Lord, for you alone have the words of eternal life. Amen. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, when the gospel lesson was about Christ's first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, I pointed out that we have no clue what wedding ceremonies look like in the Bible. We have stories that took place before weddings, the parable of the young maidens with their lamps at the ready for the procession of the bridegroom through the streets. and We have several stories about post-nuptial banquets, about kings throwing banquets and who was invited to the bridal feast and who was not, who was cast out. But that moment in the middle, when someone pronounced the couple husband and wife, we have no script. We don't even know who did the pronouncing. As a consequence, if we want something from sacred scripture to be spoken at a wedding, the passage options are lifted from other contexts. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. That's a beautiful passage, isn't it? Kind of fits well, a couple speaking unashamedly, their vows of loyalty to one another. Even if the text does continue in context, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ooh, record scratch. That's a downer. Can't talk about death anymore at a wedding that interrupts the joyfulness of the occasion. So I vows of shifted over the past century. They used to end until death us do part according to God's holy law and thereto I plight thee mine troth. At least that's what they used to say plighting thee mine troth. Actually when Charles and Diana married they updated that phrasing to say and thereto I give thee my troth. Uh, Troth it's just a very ancient way of saying my vow my truth But now, traditionally, the couple says, as long as we both shall live, this is my solemn vow. The sentiment is the same, but we prefer to focus on the living side of the equation rather than the expiration of the vow upon the expiration of one of the celebrants. So we can drop the where you die, I will die comment and simply stop with your people will be my people, except the context of that verse of of a deep pledge of love is actually spoken by a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law from Ruth to Naomi after they were both widowed. That makes the whole thing a little odd to use as a wedding vow. Imagine in the middle of a ceremony calling forward, I'd like now the the groom's mother to come forward. Your daughter-in-law has something she wants to say to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. No, no, that, that, that doesn't work in a wedding. Alternatively, we have a bunch of psalms where there are words about love and some unpleasant stuff in Ephesians about husbands loving their wives and wives obeying their husbands. We usually don't invite that part of the Apostle Paul to weddings anymore. And then there are big chunks of the Song of Solomon that talks, well, more about lust than it does about being weddingly, which leaves us frequently here at the first verse of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And it's not bad, love is patient, love is kind, not boastful, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest is love, except the context problem. The context. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is exhorting the members of the Corinthian church to start treating one another with mutual respect, like parts of a body, each important in its own way, but all interdependent, the eyes, ears, hands, mouth, feet, you all need each other in order to be a body, writes Paul. Except I think he realized at the end of this 12th chapter, he's written himself into a rabbit hole of metaphor. The spleen cannot say to the gallbladder, I have no need of thee. He could have scratched the whole thing out and started over. But back then, parchment and ink were very expensive. So rather than drop the body metaphor thing, he just ends this section with says, Erase that. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Let me let me talk about this differently. And then he completely shifts from a metaphor to exactly what he wants to say. And what he wants to say is, that if a church doesn't have love, forget it. You can have a music program and worship services with angelic choirs and articulate readers and deeply moving sermons, but if you're not able to love one another, it is all a bunch of noise. You can have a youth program with hundreds of kids going on mission trips around the globe. You can have a benevolence budget that funds humanitarian work so they're the envy of all. But if at the core there isn't love, you've missed the point. The love of which Paul speaks isn't the sweet, swooning romance of a young couple, it is the mutual, deep respect of a community of faith, interdependently connected to accomplish the hard work of conveying God's love into the world. Let me say that again, it is the deep, mutual respect of a community of faith, interdependently connected to accomplish the hard work of conveying God's love into the world. So when Paul says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, he is telling us that we can put up with each other's nonsense, provided that our shared meaning and purpose is conveying the love of Christ into the world. This chapter is suggesting to me that before I judge you, or criticize you, or dismiss you, or talk about you behind your back, I need to evaluate my opinion and words through the lens of the love of Christ. We may not get along. We may not share much in common. You may get on my last nerve, but before I have an argument with you, I must ask myself, how does my attitude or my words or actions toward you build up the church's capacity to express Christ's love in the world? Which brings us to that strange third paragraph there in 1 Corinthians 13, portion of which are frequently omitted when it's used for a wedding ceremony because it reveals too much of the context from which Paul is writing. Everything else, writes Paul, is going to come to an end. When I was a child, everything I did was childish, And that was okay because I was a child. Kids get away with doing kid stuff, things that adults do not get away with because, well, they're kids. But when I grew up, said Paul, this kind of playground, call it like it is, childish tantrum stuff, has got to stop. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Of course, Paul is not talking about a mirror on the medicine cabinet that you saw this morning looked and thought, you know, maybe your hair was receding or you're starting to look too much like one of your parents. The mirrors of which Paul speaks were notorious for how poorly they reflected reality. It was a sheet of bronze or copper hammered thin and then polished until reflection was possible. Some wealthy folks could afford silver mirrors over which was then poured blown glass to protect the surface from turning. But if you think of antique glass with all of its ripples and bubbles poured out over hammered metal, you get the point. The reflection is not necessarily all that high quality. Now we see through an extremely poor reflection, wrote Paul. In fact, the Greek word for mirror is enigmati, enigmati, enigma. Now we see an enigma, a puzzle, an obscurity of how things truly look. But when we get to the end, when the prophecies and tongues and knowledge are all rendered obsolete, we will see things exactly as they are, when all that is left is the endurance of love. We will completely understand. We will be able to love as we are loved. Crystal clarity will accompany our understanding, and without a doubt, we will realize it was about love all along. Who remembers their first biology class when the teacher brought out the microscopes? Remember that? Open up the cabinet and you got the microscopes out. Some had lights in them with AA batteries, but they didn't always work really well. At least when I was in biology class, they didn't work well. And so you could flip over the light bulb and on the other side it was a little mirror where you could catch the light to shine up through the slide. And then you'd squint and focus and turn and adjust. And the teacher would tell you to draw what you saw. My ninth grade biology class teacher was Mr. Gross, and then a great name for a biology teacher, Mr. Gross, at George W. Norris Jr. High School, and he'd walk around the room and look at our drawings. You'd draw the big circle, which was the field of view, and then you would look and squint, and you would draw what you thought you saw inside that field of view through the microscope. Mr. Gross walking from station to station, oh, that looks good. Oh, you caught something kind of shadowy inside of that circle. Oh, there's some like hairs on what you're looking at. And then he came to mine and looked at my drawing and said, Crow, you just drew a picture of your eyelash. Fact is, when we're about to criticize another or diminish their contribution, or ignore them as other human beings. We are doing so from a blurry perspective. We think we see when all we have of them is a partial picture, our squinty-eyed shot of our own eyelash instead of seeing beyond our field of vision to what is truly there. Most likely not of how God perceives them, but of our own selfish view. I know in part, in part, like the tiny speck of eyelash, which isn't our true focus. Love, says Paul, is the enduring capacity to see things as they truly are, for things to snap into focus, not as we think they are, not as we perceive them to be, but as they truly are. So the suggestion is this. If we look out into the world and do not have love, look again, refocus back out to the perspective of God's view, because God's perspective is accurate. When God looks upon the world, the overwhelming accurate depiction of how things truly are brings God love. And if we do not find ourselves overwhelmed with the perspective of love, then we have not yet focused. Our mirrors are cloudy. Look again and again and again until we find love. and Then we know that we are using God's focus. I'm going to end with one of my dad's favorite stories. Not all of his favorite stories were jokes. Many of them were, but this one was not my dad didn't always tell these stories outside of the home because in addition to being painfully shy he was also a little sentimental and he didn't like getting choked up in front of other people but he didn't mind too much in front of his own kids the story is about a man who had been blind from birth who was given the opportunity for a sight-correcting surgery after a lifetime of blindness he was going to be able to finally see And it concerned some of his friends because he was married and while he did not know, they did know, his wife was not particularly attractive. He was good looking but she was not and they were worried that when the bandages were removed and he could see her, things might get a little awkward as they moved forward. But what were you going to do? Then came the day for the dressing to be removed, the gauze to be pulled off from his eyes, and he could see light for the first time, and slowly through the drops, as they carefully pulled away the tape, and he blinked. The eyes came into focus for the first time. And as the blurriness faded, he looked upon the face of his wife and began to cry. Overwhelmed by the power of sight, he was sobbing. Finally, able to speak, he said, I cannot believe how fortunate I am because even in my blindness, I married the most beautiful woman in the world. See the point? If I have not love, I'm a sounding gong, a clanging cymbal, a bunch of noise. If I have not love, I am nothing. I gain nothing. I do not see as God sees. Faith, hope, And love abide. These three. The greatest. The greatest. The greatest of these is love. Love. Amen.